Hello, and thanks for joining us for another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. When I arrived as the new pastor at the Church of St. Patrick in Ravenna, New York, back in 2015, I was delighted to see that there was a young man in his 30s so involved in the life of the parish. I later learned that Paul Macarelli is also a first responder and in law enforcement. He's also a veteran of the U.S. Army. And after I had been at the parish for a few years, he was deployed to Iraq and is here now to talk with us about what it meant for him to have a strong gift of faith and empathy that had to be put into true action in an active war zone. Hear how he turned to specific scriptures and to the values he was raised with to find his way through life in a war zone. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat and help everyone or anyone that might find some help from, you know, my story. But uh, yeah, as far as growing up, I grew up in uh, Catskill, New York. I uh, was probably there until about the age of 12 and then spent uh, the majority of my, my rest of my youth anyway in my adolescence in uh, Athens, New York. Um, later on, uh, Probably in my early 20s, uh, my mother and I, we would we uh, eventually moved to New Baltimore. And, you know, during that time, uh, I did attend St. Patrick's in Catskill. And, you know, St. Patrick's in Catskill was starting to go through some hard times you know, mm. financially and, you know, finding priests and such. And, you know, so, you know, as being in New Baltimore and close to Ravina, it, uh, you know, made sense to look at a in another church and, you know, by by fate, you know, found, found a new home in the same name at St. Patrick's in Ravina. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great joy for us. And it's interesting that some of the people who go to St. Patrick's in Ravina actually, because they've lived in different parts of Greene County over the course of their lives, some of them indeed have gone to St. Patrick's school in Catskill when that was open. So there are a lot of connections. Yes. And I, I was also an alum of, uh, you know, St. Patrick's, uh, the grade school, uh, K through eight, because uh, by the time I was going through school, the uh, high school had shut down. So it was just K through eight. And then mm. actually wound up uh, going to Coleman down in Kingston when that was open. Ah, wonderful. So talk to me about what, what you wanted from your life when you were a kid. You, you were very involved in church, but uh, did you think about becoming a priest? Uh, you know, it was, it was always, it was always mentioned, um, you know, a lot of people, it was an altar server from an early age and, you know, a lot of people, oh, you should be a priest, you should, you should be a priest. And, you know, it was just something that, you know, I know you all get the calling and it was just something I, although I had a very strong faith, you know, even from a young age, I, I, uh, it was just not something I had a calling for, you know, I think as a, as a child, you're not really in that mindset. You're more so like, you know, I think, I think when I was younger, you know, what, what kid didn't want to be a fireman or a policeman mm. or, uh, you know, and actually I think I wanted to be an astronaut for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. I mean, that's a fun thing, but, uh, you, yeah. you're, you said that your mom was actually too practical to let you dream too wildly about yeah, what you wanted yeah, to be. So, so it was kind of funny during, during, you know, getting ready to graduate high school, I had, and it's one of my favorite stories and we'll, we'll, her and I will chat about it from time to time. 
Um, you know, it was, you know, senior year of high school, getting ready to graduate, you know, and this, this high school, you know, hey, you know, where are you going to college? Where are you going to college? And, you know, I really didn't know, you know, at the time, uh, I was actually really into those volcano movies that were out. I think uh, one of them was Dante's Peak. And yeah. it was just the, the idea of doing that kind of work, uh, volcanology and stuff, like going, you know, going to foreign lands and, you know, studying these volcanoes and stuff. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a fun thing. Maybe I'll do that. And, you know, <laughs> it makes me laugh because, you know, one day, you know, I'm sitting there and, you know, my mother's like, you know, she she has the Green County Daily Mail and she hands me the one ad section. And she goes, hey, where do you see... Uh, where do you see volcanologists in the Wanad section? Let me know. And, volcanologists. Know. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of those wanted in Greene County right now. No, definitely not in Greene <laughs> County. Uh, definitely not in the, you know, in the Catskills. But uh, so it was sort of a, it was a funny, uh, you know, sobering reminder. And I actually uh, had no clue what I wanted to do. But, you know, through, through a connection through, you know, my mother, she knew a, friend of a friend and you know i got a, a interviewed at uh, columbia green for and i had no clue what i wanted to do and wound up uh, they're like well we'll put you in criminal justice and you can always apply those to to something else if you decide to do something else and you know from there i i actually stuck with it i had two years of criminal justice at columbia green i i was a uh, rosebud for a little bit went to st rose ah. did, uh, Got my four-year degree in, in psychology, and then from there, you know, education was always a big factor in, in, in my life, and, you know, it was always a constant push, you know, so I got my master's down at the John Jay College in Manhattan uh, for criminal justice. Wow. Wow. Now, this is this is what's really interesting, I think, for a pause, because now you've, you've done, accomplished so much in this realm, criminal justice and psychology, fascinating combination, but... A lot of people in your life were thrown off by two things. One of them was that you were the large, probably the the tallest and most adult-looking ultra server most people in Catskill had ever seen. Probably, yes. <laughs> you had a 17-year career as an ultra server. So that's the first of the things that threw people off. What allowed you or what drew you to be so involved in the mass for so long when other people so give up on it? So, so it was very, it was very interesting. I, I was, um, I was in first grade. I was probably five at the time. And there was a priest from St. Patrick's. Uh, he was a very well-known priest there, Father Tita. He also baptized me mm. and, uh, came, came to the school, came into class one day and just randomly picked myself and another, another kid. And they had a funeral, funeral mass about to happen or, you know, go on and, uh, they just wanted altar servers. I think maybe the family wanted altar servers. You know, like I don't really recall the, the details. And I actually don't even remember serving at the mass per se, but I just remember being called up to, to do that. And, you know, from there, it's just been one of those things where I, I really enjoyed it, I guess. And it was one of those things I, I enjoyed from you know, from early on all the way through, I was, I don't think uh, you see this much uh, in parishes, but I was, I was so young as an altar server when I first started that I couldn't even receive communion. It wasn't for another two years before I could receive communion on the altar. So it was, 
just one of those things. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. So you're, yeah, which of course is something that, like you said, right, it doesn't happen very often. Um, and I imagine there's even probably some policies that would say, oh, that's not the best idea. But, but how wonderful from such an early age, there you were feeling so close to God and to where the activity was. Yeah, it was, you know, and, and as I, as I went through and, you know, as I got older as an altar server, you know, I still really enjoyed it. And I would say it's something that plays into, you know, later on in military life, you sort of feel a sense of, you know, duty and honor towards the, towards the role in the job. But I, I also found a very, I enjoyed the perspective of, perspective of the mass much better because I've, you know, I've sat in the pew even as a kid and then, you know, I've sat in the altar for so long that I've just really enjoyed that, that view from, you know, a lot of people don't get, you know, I think some of your, you know, you have adult, you know, altar servers at St. Pat's so they can probably appreciate it. But, you know, when you're, when you're experiencing the mass and you're experiencing it from a different, just a different angle in church, it's, it's just such a, such a, I can't even explain the experience. You just experience it in a much, I think, more profound way. Yeah, I hear that. I, I, yeah, and I, I do know that I've seen that as a priest, that sometimes kids that are antsy in the pew and are distracted and are maybe sometimes acting out, if you put them in an alb, that white altar server robe that we have, and you put them in the sanctuary near Father, suddenly things get real focused and interesting. Well, you're not lost in the crowd anymore either. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. So so we were saying, Paul, that the first thing that threw people off and maybe suggested to them that you might be going into a, uh, a field like ministry is because you were an altar server for, for 17 years, which is amazing. But in yes. addition to that, I think something that is a real noticeable aspect of your personality for everybody who knows you with any any kind of, of familiarity is that you really radiate a strong sense of empathy. And I noticed it as the priest at St. Patrick's in Ravenna when I met you. I thought, wow, this 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 man has a lot of really strong, caring, empathic skills. But a, but that was something that was true in your life even as a kid. So the combination of altar-serving and empathy probably suggested to people that uh being in the right in the heart of like crime and justice issues might not be where you were heading but talk to talk to us for a second about that empathy when did you first realize that you were given this this uh kind of gift this gift of empathy you know you know i i never i guess i never view it as a as a gift so much as empathy i think is something you have to learn um, you know, and I, you know, I learned, I, I believe I, you know, for me personally, I learned a lot of empathy, you know, especially from my mother and my grandmother. My, uh, my mother was a nurse, you know, she worked at the Catskill hospital and then in, uh, women's health after, but, uh, you know, she, she always, you know, she worked in ICU, she worked in, uh, nursing homes and stuff. So, you know, you have that empathy i think from that and then you know my grandmother too my grandmother worked at the same hospital she just worked in the in the kitchen of the nursing home but mm. my, my grandmother always had this knack of of uh meeting people that were always the outcast or you know not maybe socially accepted for one reason or another and you know she always had that empathy i think for them and that's just something you 
you pick up and you learn. It's not something said or it's not something, hey, Paul, you need to be empathic. You know, it's, mm. it's one of those things you, you just observe. And, you know, for, for my grandmother, my grandmother was also very, uh, very empathic towards animals. She, she had just such a huge heart for animals. And, and I'll tell you what, you know, we used to live in Allen Street in Catskill. And at 4 or 5 p.m., every stray cat in Allen Street knew they were going to get a good cooked meal you know, <laughs> up, up the road. <laughs> because your grandmother could not stand to think of a, of a creature not eating. No, yeah, it just, you know, she, she, everyone had to be fed at the end of the day and, you know, had, had to have a good night. And that's, that's even something, you know, I, I learned from my mother, too. I have a, you know, another little story about, you know, when I was growing up, probably, you know, three, four, four, five, and, you know, you have your favorite stuffed animals you like to sleep with and stuff. And, and, uh, you know, if it was like the winter, sometimes, you know, in, in good fun, you, my mother would uh, tease me a little bit. She'd take that stuffed animal out and, you know, maybe dip its nose in snow and said, no, it's got to stay outside. And of course, you know, as a kid, you get upset. No, no, he's got to, he's got to stay inside and be Aww. warm. So yeah, uh-huh. you know, that's just, you know, I think that's just how you, you know, you learn it and you, you know, you grow up and, you know, of course, your perspective and your lens changes as you as you grow and evolve as a person. But just early on, I would say that's the, you know, that's how I was taught empathy or that's how I learned it. How did empathy, if you take us to uh, being a uh, graduate student in criminal justice and then going out into your field, how did empathy play a role in in what you were doing? What was your first job after your master's? So, so actually, my first job, I was I was a probation officer, and I I don't know that I necessarily took my my empathy. I worked for Green County Probation, and and uh, you know, I was at that point. I think I was just still learning that that discipline, and still more so by the book. But it was more so, you know, later on when I would when I moved to Long Island, I, I would do. Uh, vehicle theft and fraudulent documents. And a, a lot of times fraudulent documents involved a lot of, uh, working with, or, you know, some people would say dealing with, I prefer to say working with, mm. you know, illegal, illegal immigrants. Mm. And, mm. and, you know, you, you're in the law enforcement world and, you know, some people have, you know, their own views, their own, their own, you know, theories about, you know, immigration and, and whatever. And, mm. You know, my, I, I think as I evolved in faith and, and empathy and, you know, you, you grow as a person, you know, I, 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 ter- I coined the term, well, not really my term, just something I picked up from a favorite TV show. But, you know, you have soft eyes when you look at a person and, and that's, it's, it's a very detailed thing, I guess, you know, when you're, when you're, you, you know, you have all the physical evidence and you have all the yeah, sure. That person probably did the the crime, but then using soft eyes, you gotta you gotta look beyond that. Like, what's you know, what's the motivation? Why did they do it? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, in third world countries and and you know places where you know we don't enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy now, even through COVID, um, mm. you just you know there there's people that have been tortured that I've talked with, you know, that have done you know done things illegal just to get into this country and so you know when you when you have those soft eyes and you put yourself in those shoes you know you can certainly you know have some empathy for them and you know treat them like a human being and you know help walk them at least through the criminal justice system it's not a 
you know, it's not a hard and fast rule. You got to throw, you know, put them away and, you know, throw the key away and all that. It's, you know, you can certainly take your time, help someone through. Maybe, you know, you know, they're going to be in, in a cell for overnight. Hey, we're all going out to grab dinner. Do you want to slice a pizza on my way back or something before you're, you know, in, in lockdown for the rest of the night? So it's, that's, you know, it's, that's powerful. I mean, I, you know, I feel as you say that I've never heard that term before soft eyes, but I feel like it's a choice that I make and I have to make, or I'm invited to make in priesthood too. You know, when the people who haven't gone to church in 10 years now want to get married in the church. (laughs) And there's a part of me that could look at them with hard eyes and say, you just want to use the aisle. You just want a nice aisle to walk down and you want to have nice photos but soft eyes could change the story quite a bit. You know, these are people who maybe didn't have, you know, any kind of way of connecting with faith until they wound up meeting a person that they wanted to be with forever. And now they want that to be blessed by God. They, they never stopped believing in God. They just didn't know how to express it. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I think what you just said is something I'm going to take into my life as, and my vocabulary to look at some, someone with soft eyes. Yeah. That's, that's also when you look at it with, uh, you know, you think of Christmas Eve, Christmas day or Easter day, you know, the, you know, sometimes people only come those times of the year, but, you know, at the same time, look at it for, you know, you hope that they gain from the message and the experience and, you know, take that on and take it further. Mm, I love it. I absolutely love it. That's beautiful. So thank you for that. That's something I'm going to, I'm going to tuck in my satchel for the, for the journey. That's, that's really helpful. What, what was it that brought you from that kind of an investigation career that you were in to the military? What was, what was the calling to the military like? So, so, you know, for a long time, I kind of had always wanted to do the military. Uh, when I was in college, uh, during my rest of my bachelor's and uh, my master's, I, you know, I was actually in ROTC. I started off when I was at St. Rose, ROTC was at Siena. And then uh, when I moved, or not moved, but when I transferred and worked, uh, was working on my master's in, in New York City, I went to, to Fordham for it. And just the timing in life, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't working out. My, you know, my grandmother was really sick and, you know, just needed to be home. And then, you know, also I had, you know, my master's, which was, you know, everything, you know, it was a very important, important piece to something I wanted to accomplish. So, it was one of those things that I wanted to do military, but, you know, I kind of just, you know, put it aside for a bit. And it was probably 2006. I looked at the military again and, you know, it just wasn't the right fit. It wasn't the right time. And, you know, the, the actually the recruiter was way too pushy and I, I mm. just, it kind of turned me right off. But, uh, you know, around, around 2010, 2011, you know, I started thinking about it a lot again and a couple of friends at that point in the military that I, you know, talked to about it and, you know, like, you know, what do you think? Do you think, you know, I'm, I'm at this point in 2000, 2010, I'm 30 years old. Mm. And, and so for perspective, I'm 40 now, but, you know, I, you know, late in life, it's, it's a little bit more different to do it later than life than right out of high school, but. You know, I didn't want to give up my law enforcement career and, you know, the, the National Guard was a very good option and I originally looked at Air Force and, 
you know, kind of wanted to do the Air Force. And, you know, a friend of mine, uh, you know, she's, she had been in the Air Force, you know, for a long time. Said, oh, no, you got to be an officer. You, you know, you're definitely a leader. And I don't view myself as a leader, but... Um, but no, it's like, you, you definitely, you definitely got to do this. But, you know, at the time, uh, the Air Force didn't have any officer positions and, you know, there's always that little thing tug, tugging at my, uh, leg about wanting to do the army. And it, it was more so for two reasons. I, I wish I could say it was altruistic, but I was bored at work. <laughs> it, it, it came down to that i was just simply bored at work our case loaded gun way down and I, I will say i gotta kind of do a quick cutaway about you know caseload being down and stuff it's not that i was looking for you know people to arrest or anything like that it's that for me being an investigator is always about the puzzle like I don't care if the per, you know, I, I do care if the person's guilty or innocent, but it, it, as far as where the case goes, if I can prove they're innocent, great. If I prove they're guilty, you know, we'll take care of it. But mm. I don't, you know, it's not about doing the arrest. It's about actually solving the puzzle. And that's always what drives me. And so mm. at that, at that point, the puzzle had been, you know, there hadn't been many puzzles for me to do. So I, uh, I, you know, I started looking and thinking more about the military and training a little harder at the gym. And uh, so I wound up that I just wound up in the army. It was something that, that you know, my family, it's been a family thing. My, mm. my grandfather served stateside in World War II. My, uh, my uncle was voluntold to Vietnam, so he wasn't really a willing participant. But, you know, at the same time, it's always been the army. And, and, you know, I felt like out of all the services and all the branches of services, you know, the army was a really good balance. And mm. certainly, uh, certainly the National Guard doing it part time was, you know, in, in fitting with my schedule. The army as a as a total civilian here, you know, I've, I've, I've never done military service of any kind. But just listening to this with civilian ears, the army sounds hard to me. It sounds like boots on, um, you know, frontline combat type branch of the military. Is that a fair? Is that a fair perception? So, so for for the the main the main idea of the military, yes, it's it's a very infantry and armor being tanks and stuff driven driven uh, industry but uh, it, it also has so many other functions and branches and you know you have you need quartermasters to make sure everyone's clothed you know you have you know people you know in, in the intelligence world that you know actually drive the operations so they get the intel they let the infantry know hey the enemy's probably here go get them you know mm. kind of idea mm. so there, there are many branches to to uh to service I, I think most popular you know you think of the infantry or you think of a tank but uh there are a lot of different things you can do in the military is the first step for you at age 30 turning 31 is the first step basic training is that where you go first when you enlist yes what yep. is basic training like when you're 31 years old <laughs> Well, actually, by the time every the decision making process and the enlistment happened, and it actually just turned thirty two uh, mm. when I went uh, when I went into basic training, and I it's funny I was thinking about this today. 
when I enlisted, the the guy, there was a civilian there who books the schools and everything, and I told him, you know, hey, can I just go after this time frame in September? And he's like, yeah, sure. He goes, oh, the first, the first basic training I have open, and there's basic trainings, just to preface it real quick, there's... They're throughout the U.S. There's a couple of different centers that do basic training. and uh, But the first one that happened to be available was at uh, Fort Benning in Georgia. And, uh, you know, I knew nothing about the military at the time, you know, not really much. And the guy's like, he's like, you know, look, let me find you a different school. Let me see what else is out there. And I'm like, well, well what's wrong with Fort Benning? He goes, he goes, well, it's an infantry school. He goes, you know, you're a little older. It's, you know, and, and to me, it's like, you're going to, you're going to throw out the harshest option to me, which is what I'm looking for. Cause I need the challenge. Mm. And then you're going to try to get me to go someplace. And I'm like, you, I'm like, no, I'll go to Fort Benning. And he actually asked me a couple of times. He goes, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'll go there. And uh, wow. I had to do officer candidate school there anyway. So I'm like, I might as well just get a feel for the place. And uh, yeah, basic training at uh, Fort Benning on uh, what they call sand hill where the training takes place. Cause there's a lot of sand. Uh, yeah, that was that was definitely a challenge. Oh, uh, <laughs> what does it do to your body to go through basic? It's it's a very it's a very rigorous process, you know. If you especially if you're not used to, you know, getting up early in the morning, like you're you have to be up at four in the morning just about every morning. Mm. There is no, you know, you, you got to be up, you got to be shaved, you got to be ready online because if you if you're not, it's just going to be a miserable day. There. They're going to do uh, what they call smoking you, which is just basically you're doing push-ups, you're doing cor- what they call corrective, you know, physical training until, you know, every muscle in your body is just, you know, aching and sore and done. Oh, oh my goodness. Was it, how did you handle the mental challenge? Because when I've seen movies about this, it feels like um, the, the way it's always talk, talked about is they need to break you. You know, everyone needs to be broken. For me, watching as a civilian, the word that comes to mind is humiliation. You know, you're like humiliated. Um, How was that for you? Having been a professional with a master's degree, that could be a very different experience than it would be for an 18-year-old who's coming, you know, directly from high school into that kind of environment, which depending on the high school you went to might have you know prepared you for the road of of that how did it feel having been a professional who had who had achieved some esteem in the world to be broken well you know you kind of being a little bit older and not much wiser at you know 32 but you know a little bit wiser to the world you know you you, you might do a little bit more research on what it's like and you know it's you, you realize going in i think older that it's going to be uh you know, a mind game. And so the, I think the harder, the harder part of it for me wasn't the drill sergeants yelling at me, like, you know, in law enforcement, people yell at you and you're not, you really shouldn't have any, uh, passion or, you know, disdain towards it. People are going to yell at you because they just don't like you. And so, so that part of it didn't bother me. The physical, you know, I tell you what, I probably by seven thirty at night I was in my rack falling asleep. But, uh, <laughs> it was it was actually being there with a bunch of children, basically. You know, you have you have seventeen and eighteen year olds for the most part that 
haven't had a clue about life and, you know, think that they're, they're going to conquer this. And so I, I think there's more of a breakdown point for, for them than there is for, for someone slightly older. And I actually wasn't the oldest person there at 32. There was a guy I, I went with. We're actually still friends. Uh, he was uh, 36. Wow. Yeah. I admire that. I admire that. And interesting that because you are who you are, when you saw those guys there, 17 and 18, and they seemed like kids to you, did it did it bring out that, that empathic, nurturing side of you? Do you feel when you're around young people like that that you'd like to coach them and guide them? So, so in, in, uh, I, I don't know that there's the opportunity in basic training because although – there is a little bit of chance to do that. You're, you're really busy and you're, you're forging really good friendships, but at the same time, because it's such a harsh, uh, a harsh environment, you're, you're, you're just trying to survive at that point. And so it's, it's almost a purely survival mode and, you know, especially trying to keep up with everything, but, you know, to the best of your ability you do, you know, like me, I, I would try my best, you know, when I could. And actually probably the times, uh, it always comes back to, you know, my times in church and times with, uh, you know, religion, but probably Sundays, uh, anytime there was, you know, we would always be afforded to go to whatever religion we practiced and, you know, I would actually help out at church. I served on the altar, at, you know, cause they, it was a full volunteer thing for church of basic training. And, you know, there'd be times you could see someone that was, you know, not, not really, you know, maybe they were lonely from home. Maybe they were, you know, missing things. They've never been away for that long. And so, you know, I tell them, hey, come to church with me. You know, oh. just... <laughs> <laughs> and what did you see when you brought them to church? You would see, you know, you could you could see a change. You could see even if it was just for that hour, whatever was bothering them would, would just go away because – the, the church had a very strict policy, you know, all, all your tops have a rank on them. So, and name and, you know, obviously U.S. Army affiliation, but, you know, you took your tops off in church and at church you were just a person. You weren't a soldier, you weren't, you know. So I think I think having that delineation where, you know, you could be removed from the situation, even if it was just for an hour, just helped to, to bring that person peace. Yeah, yeah. You know? You know, what you saying that tells me that's exactly what church is like for people in civilian life, too. Can we just have peace with God for an hour and, you know, be able to just rest in that oasis? You know, it's like a rest area on a yeah, absolutely. on a very difficult road that we're traveling. So yeah. now it's time to talk about going overseas because that is obviously one of the things that we often know as a part of military service, you're sure. very close with your family. And yes. I, I know from, from being your priest at this time that, um, your mother did not enjoy the news that you uh, were going to be going overseas. Uh, take uh, us back to 2017 and or late 2017 and early 2018 when you got the news of where you were going. Well, the, the, actually, the, the first time I found out was probably like two weeks before Mother's Day. Ooh. And I actually held on to it for a while. I'm like, I'm not I'm not saying anything till after Mother's Day because I had known probably a good good three or four weeks prior to Mother's Day. And I'm like, nope, not saying anything until, you know, after Mother's Day. That was compassionate. And, <laughs> try anyway though you know the news still 
still didn't go well, but it's uh, it's funny. Deployment is still a still like a swear word in my house. Uh, my mother's still. <laughs> My, my mother refers it refers to it to that place you've been to or that place you went to. So we don't we don't usually use the term Iraq or the you know refer to it as Iraq or deployment. We'll just it's say, that oh, place. Know, it's that place. You know, oh, this happened when you were at that place you were at. Oh, brother. Oh, so. she's very traumatized. She was. I mean, I was I was here with her every week, and oh, yeah, she loves her son, and she was she was so nervous. You, however, describe yourself as a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Well, you know, I I I think it's 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 funny because you know I I think a lot of people would say, oh, you know, you're you're doing this because you're an adrenaline junkie. You're doing this because you know, and and. I think even, you know, when I was getting ready to go over and I told you about it, you know, you, you had sort of referred to the same comment. And to be honest, there are things that just, that just scare me. Like I, a six foot ladder, I have a huge, I'm definitely afraid of heights. Absolutely afraid of heights. So, you know, whereas some people might get an adrenaline rush on a roller coaster. I'm like, nope, not going on it. No, thank you. Oh boy. So, but it, you, you, uh, Go, Go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask when you when you when you make the shift from it being an idea to it being uh, a reality. How how is that for you? You know, it's one thing to have a concept. Uh, man, this is going to be so interesting. I'm going to go. I'm going to go somewhere fascinating. Versus, oh my goodness, there's conflict. So so yeah. So in, in one aspect, it's kind of like being on a on a you know, on a roller coaster and the idea that, that, oh, oh my God, what was I thinking? But then, but then at the same time, especially being a, uh, which I thought that back in basic training, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Mm. But, uh, but uh, you know, you, you, you get into it where you, you, you can't, I guess it depends on how you deal with the situation, but you know, like in, in that, in that instance, when you have that, that, uh, Oh my God moment, it's, you know, you refocus yourself on what's important. So to me at that time, my soldiers, you know, I have had 32 soldiers assigned to me. We all have to go to Iraq. We all have to prepare to go to Iraq and we all have to get back alive. And those, that, that's really just the driving force of just, fo- you know, you just focus on that situation instead of, you know, thinking of all the what ifs because you you can think about all the what ifs but it's at the end of the day it's going to make you ineffective as a leader or you know in the job you have to do yeah what is it like getting there for those of us who've never done military service never been deployed you don't you don't fly southwest airlines (laughs) No, no, no you don't actually Actually, it was funny. Uh, I went over on the advanced crew because, you know, of course, I want to be the first one there. But the, uh, the the jobs I had to do, I had to get a very uh, specific briefing and, you know, had, had to have a, a good lead time before that person left because of the things I, were ta- I was taking over. And, uh, you know, so you get there and it's, you know, first you go to Kuwait which is like a clearinghouse for all the theaters of war and everything else that's going on. So you get acclimate, you get yourself used to the heat and to the time zone. Cause it's, God, what is it? I think it's like eight. No, it's more than that. I, I forget what the time difference was, but mm. it was pretty significant time difference. So, you know, you start acclimating and then, uh, 
you know, you kind of get comfortable, in, especially in Kuwait, because Kuwait's not really a combatant area anymore. It's a very safe place. Actually, people, certain people are allowed to bring their families to Kuwait now as like a permanent change of station. Wow. So, so if, um, we li- if we think back 30 years to the Persian Gulf War, it's, it's really come a long way. Completely, completely different. You know, if, if you're stationed in Kuwait during this, you know, there were people going out to the, you know, with a authorized pass, you're going out, they're doing scuba lessons, they're, they're doing certain things in, in the city of Kuwait that, yeah, 30 years ago, you definitely weren't doing. Wow. Wow. So how long did you get to spend in that acclimating environment? So I was there for, I think it was just over a week I was there with, you know, a group and you start getting your, uh, you know, your flight assignment and everything. And so, you know, the you go from one part of Kuwait to another and then the other part of Kuwait, you fly uh, basically into Baghdad at the, at the international airport. Uh, if you recall in, in recent news, uh, I think it was over the summer, the, the Irani uh, general that got, that got uh, uh, targeted in, in in Iraq was at that airport. Mm. So, so you go, you know, once you get in there and you know, it's, it doesn't really hit you cause you're really tired. You've probably been on a rotator for probably close to 24 hours just to, to coin the term to get in country. Mm. And then, you know, once that sort of, uh, you might even want to call it an adrenaline rush of travel sort of starts to fade and then you get to your final destination and then it kind of starts to settle in. You, just crested the roller coaster and you're, you know, those butterflies in your stomach are hitting your stomach as you're going straight down, Ooh. you know, the, the roller coaster ride, you sort of, you're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, another uh, corny term, but you're definitely not in Kansas anymore. That's for sure. How long? Now you're, I love that description. You get there and suddenly now it's the it, there's no more click 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 of the uh, of the roller coaster car going up the incline. Oh, yeah. Now you're going down, and it's butterflies, and it and it feels a little less controlled. Wait. How long at that point did you expect to be there? So the uh, we had no clue. the The standard rotation now is nine months. So I was prepared to do nine months, but. There had been talk about changing mission and changing different things, and you know they said people will probably go home earlier and such. And actually, the uh, the other interesting thing just popped into my mind was the day I landed. Uh, it, I landed at a you know by the time my final destination, it's called a, a FOB forward operating base, and the FOB uh, itself was actually located at the uh, Iraqi High Tribunal where uh, Saddam Hussein was. Uh, you know, tried for war crimes before the second surge of ISIS came in and, you know, why we were back there. But, um, wow. but I actually landed on, uh, on Ash Wednesday and Ash Wednesday that year was so contested because it was uh, on St. Patrick's day in 2018. Oh, you were, so it is oh, back home. People thought their biggest problem was not having corned beef um, yeah. on St. Patrick's Day because it was Ash Wednesday. Meanwhile, yeah. you're in Iraq. Wow. Wow. Tell me, what was the scene? Were you in danger at certain times? How dangerous was it? You know, you, you, you don't really focus on it. Like, there, there are times, you know, like you'll, 
you'll be sitting outside at night, maybe chatting with some, some friends uh, in a specific area I work. We had our own sort of private chat area, so we'd sit outside, maybe talk for a little bit before we'd go turn in. And, and uh, you know, it wouldn't be anything to hear some, you know, uh, small arms fire in the background, you know, in the city, you could you could definitely hear uh, what I coined the term. Uh, you could definitely hear some stuff popping off at night. But, uh, oh. you know, we and we had a couple of um, what they would call false acquisitions. So the, the whole alarm for the base would go off as like a incoming, you know, projectile or something incoming. But it was wound up not being anything. Sometimes, you know, the radar gets a little kinky. There was, I think, one time or maybe two times where we had a very small UAV fly over our airspace, which was probably enemy reconnaissance. Ah, but, you know, aside from that, there was never really any, at least to me, perceivable. Like, you know, you could hear you could hear gunshots in the distance, but, you know, I, I can hear that in my backyard in Oswego County, too. So to me, that doesn't, you know. Uh, it, well, and that's, I think that's something interesting that you're bringing up is that uh, a lot of us, I think, have felt that we were a bit insulated from violence. You know, and I think the the year 2020 is teaching us, no, we're all just, you know, there's no such thing as a total bubble of protection from the real world. You know, we're all, we're all experiencing this together. What are the memories that, that stand out to you from your time in Iraq? Were there any moments that, that are, are things you go back to now? Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple things. I always think of, um, the, the potential of the place in, in general, um, you know, I was, when I first got there, I, you know, I got settled in, got to learn, you know, what I had to do, but there were times I had to travel north to, uh, Erbil, uh, which is very Northern Iraq. It's in, in the, almost on the border of Turkey and very, uh, uh, you know, just, just a completely different region of Iraq that you, you know, it's like the difference, I guess, of going from New York to Georgia, you know, when you think of the differences, but, um, you know, it, it was, one of those things, the first thing I remember is, I, I tell you, I'm absolutely terrified of heights, but, you know, from, to get back to the Baghdad airport, you have to go into the embassy and take a helicopter from, from uh, the uh, embassy to the airport. And, you know, here I am, and, you know, of, of the most afraid of heights, and I'm in this little Huey helicopter, sitting at the, sitting at the jump they put me in the jump door too, which I'm like, there's, I'm like, you guys are closing the door here. Right. And they're like, Nope. Oh, and, you know, <laughs> all you, all you are is just like strapped in. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, the, the, you know, on, on key, the helicopter pilot probably could sense my fear of heights and decided, you know, while we're in the air to bank, you know, to oh. the left. So like, Oh yeah. So here I am just strapped in this helicopter and I'm actually, not really hanging by the straps because you're you're in tight, but it's like your your body's against those straps. But you know, instead of you know letting the fear, it's like you know all of a sudden, well, I'm like you know, you get comfortable with the straps, so you know you're not going to fall out. And then you start looking at the city, and it's it's just amazing. You look at a place that's you know the cradle of civilization, and it just amazes you this 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 foreign land that's you know you you look over and you know you start thinking about, you know, the, the Old Testament and some of the New Testament and, you know, places where, 
you know, a lot of the biblical superheroes just walked, you know, this is, this is a place of, you know, just immense history and you just, you know, you just get really, uh, taken back by it. Yeah. It's, that strikes me as a really beautiful thing that it's not just a, a harsh foreign land that is uh, occupied in, in large part by a, uh, a force you're in conflict with. It's a beautiful, historic part of God's world. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's one of those things that after that first flight, it's like I would probably use any excuse possible to get back on the helicopter after that just for for that uh, particular view. And it, it probably goes back to, you know, like I mentioned about church, you get that altar view of mass, you get that altar view of Iraq, just a lot higher. An altar view of Iraq. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's, that's a beautiful image. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, tell me this was the, would you say that it changed your relationship with your fear of heights? Is it different now because of that? Oh, absolutely not. I'm still terrified. <laughs> still terrified of heights. But uh, there's things that are more powerful yeah. than the fear of heights and that the wonder, yes. the wonder was actually stronger than the fear. Yep, and oh. it, it was. And I would have, if, if, if I still had the opportunity today, not that I, you know, to go back, but if I had that opportunity to be in that helicopter just to look at that view, I would, I would certainly take it over the fear any day. Oh my gosh, that's powerful. That's powerful. I wonder how many people listening can relate to that as an analogy for their life. When am I willing to let an experience of wonder overcome the fear? Because there's so many things that are legitimate fears. But, uh, but yeah, I love that. Even now, even knowing how terrifying it is, I would do it again. That's powerful. That's powerful. Uh, you said there was another moment too that comes to mind. Yeah, there was, um, I had a, one of the, you know, probably just like my grandmother, I started adopting these soldiers like left and right, you know, and that's, that's what <laughs> you, you wind up doing. They're like stray cats once in a while. And, yeah. You know, just and so there's this one kid, and, and he uh, wasn't anywhere from New York, but just by default, you know, was working with me. And, you know, he's like, hey, I, I have a, um, you know, I'm trying to go get the airport, uh, a passport, because, you know, when I go home, I'm getting married, and we want to go to the Bahamas, and I need a passport. And the embassy says they can process it right away. And I had the ability to go, very few people can go to the embassy, but I had embassy escort, right? So I'm like, well make the appointment, let me know, here's the days I'm free, and, you know, we'll go do it, and so, so we did, we went over to the embassy, to the consulate, and, you know, we're in, basically, where they issue visas to, you know, anyone, like, if you're an Iraqi citizen, want to come to the U.S. to visit family, you have to apply for a visa to get out of the country, and all that, and so I'm, I'm sitting there, and it, it just, I was amazed, so, like, by this point, we're probably six months, or, probably three months into the rotation, but, you know, between all the training and all the spin-up time, like, I haven't, hadn't had a chance to really, you know, see families, see kids. I have some, I would call several adopted uh, nieces and nephews, people I call nieces and nephews, but, uh, and I was just amazed because we're sitting in this, in this uh, room for the visas, and all that's there is just all these Iraqi families that you could have been in, in downtown you know, USA, just like, like anything else, the kids were playing with toys, like you were in a doctor's office. And it just really amazed me for all of our differences, how 
just very similar and same we all are. You mm. know, we mm. don't necessarily need to speak the same language to really realize that, oh yeah, they're just like us. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like that is, I'm hearing also that uh, there is your gift of empathy showing up again. You know, oh, like me, you care about this. Your goals, your goals for your family are the same as my goals. Your hopes are the same as my hopes. Yes, exactly. Oh, man, that feels so important to me. It's almost like, hey, my, we're both humans. That's funny. We're family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No it's matter like, where right. you're from. Mm, yeah. mm, I love that. What so? What does that mean about now that you've you've served in the Middle East? What does the Middle East mean to you these days? How do you think about it now? You know, you know, I still I still think about it with that same, I guess, wide-eyed childlike view when I really you know was over there and, and really got into it. You know, I, I um, it, it's a country of just such great potential. You know, when you look at it, you know, and I don't mean to bring you know, capitalism there, but just, just the ability, if it could open up for tourism, especially for religious tourism, the oh. amount of, you know, the amount that the whole world could gain just from the history of, you know, the basically known as the cradle of civilization. That's right. Um, just, just an absolutely amazing, to me, an amazing place. I know a lot of, a lot of, um, people would probably disagree that have been over there because I know a lot of people who have saw, saw way more horrors and, you know, experienced way more than, you know, I, I probably did over there, but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those places, you know, looking, looking beyond all those, you know, atrocities, you know, you just, you just see such great potential for, for, for a country. Sounds like the altar view. You know? Yes, absolutely. It's the altar view of the country. I love that. Oh, I love it. I love it. What's what's the role of faith for a person who's there? What what kind of workout did your faith get? What was your faith doing during this time? Um, you know, it's it, it's one of those things. I you know, it, it uh, for me, I I felt like it was just strengthened and stronger. You know, by by being there. You know, it's it was. Like anything that's austere, you know, I, I, I really love like uh, Alaskan shows like Life Below Zero because you watch it and these people are in such remote areas and it's, you know, mm. they're basically on God's terms at that point. Mm. You know? mm -hmm. and, and, and that's and that's that's what it was over there. It's, you know, it's just living life on, on God's terms because that's that's all you have left, you know, when you can think of, you know, safety and everything. And, you know, I. I tell you all the time, like if I, you know, when I email you, probably every other email is about Psalm 91, and you know, I have a, I have a huge, you know, love and respect for Psalm 91. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I actually, it, I had the, I have a book that I carry with me pretty much all the time now because I'm doing a lot of COVID stuff. But it, it was something I'd gotten a basic training, and it has the Psalm in there, but then it breaks the psalm down by all these different stories about, you know, World War II during D-Day, like, you know, people who had, you know, the psalm or prayed the psalm that, you know, just great devastation, you know, never came upon them. And it's it's, it's known as the soldier's psalm, actually. Paul, I knew that this was an important psalm. Like you said, whenever we would email, you so often would say, 
you know, Psalm 91 reference again. I know you've heard this from me before and it's powerful. So, you know, I've got it open in front of me. And because some of our listeners might not, might not be familiar with it, Psalm 91, it is, uh, probably 3000 years. It's as old as a rock, you know, it's like a three to 4,000 year old, um, song that was, uh, it's actually, one of the favorite songs that Catholics have for funerals. It's the song that we always sing at funerals that people love that's based on Psalm 91 is what we call On Eagle's Wings. And he will raise you up on eagle's wings, bear you on the breath of dawn, make you to shine like the sun, and hold you in the palm of his hand. So here it is right in front of me. You who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shade of the Almighty, say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will rescue you from the fowler's snare, from the destroying plague, he will shelter you with his pinions, and under his wings you will take refuge. His faithfulness is a protecting shield. You shall not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that roams in darkness, nor the plague that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, near you it shall not come. You need simply watch. The punishment of the wicked you will see because you have the Lord for your refuge and have made the Most High your stronghold. No evil shall befall you. No affliction come near your tent. For he commands his angels with regard to you to guard you wherever you go. With their hands they shall support you lest you strike your foot against a stone. You can tread upon the asp and the viper, trample the lion and the dragon. Because he clings to me, I will deliver him. Because he knows my name, I will set him on high. He will call upon me and I will answer. I will be with him in distress. I will deliver him and give him honor. With length of days, I will satisfy him and fill him with my saving power. Ooh, powerful, powerful words. You know, I'm you know what I'm struck? First time I have read that, Paul, since coronavirus, and to hear the two references to the plague. Yes. Isn't that powerful? Even yes. the plague will not touch you. Know that you where is it? Um the plague ravages at noon. Um that's powerful. He will rescue you from the fowler's snare from the destroying plague. Wow. Which is which is why you know, and I'll jump out real quick to you know current times when when I first got sent down for my first COVID mission, they they sent us straight down to Westchester uh, right as the outbreak started, and you know probably just as much as that roller coaster ride and the butterflies in my stomach in Iraq, I had the same thing you know, going down to Westchester. But the, the first thing I thought about was to make sure, just like in Iraq, I had that book with me and, you know, that prayer with me at all times when I went down there. Mm, powerful. Yeah, I hear it. I hear it. It's, wow, wow. It's it's so beautiful to know that you can engage a 3,000-year-old piece of scripture 
and and let it speak to you right here, right now. That feels so meaningful to me that you can. I mean that that is a that psalm in particular is one that Jesus learned as a kid. And the thing that always creeped me out about that is when the devil tempted Jesus. That famous story of Jesus being in the desert and he's fasting for forty days and forty nights, and then the devil comes and um, speaks to him and says, "Turn these stones into bread and." And uh, throw yourself down from the temple. And when he does it, when he says that, he quotes Psalm 91 and says, Does not scripture say he will send his angels to guard you so that you will never strike your foot against a stone? And I mean, to think of, um, you know, an image from the New Testament of the devil using that to try to tempt someone in a time of trial. It shows you the power of that psalm. That is powerful. Absolutely, and it's you know it's one of those things too where it it, uh, it also helps bring you know if you're in despair or you know you're having issues it's it's certainly certainly something to reflect on. I know it's uh, something also used in a in a lot of uh, prison ministry, and I actually a couple of years ago, actually way before Iraq, because I've always had I've had this copy since basic training. I wound up. Uh, I remember uh, Deacon Steve had a really good homily, and it was something in regards to probably the despair of prisoners and, you know, people, you know, who, you know, yeah, they got themselves into a bad spot, but then, you know, they have a hard time in prison. So I actually got him a copy of it just so he could take with him along on his ministry, too. How beautiful. How beautiful. Wow. You know, we're um, we're coming closer to the end of our time, so I want to ask you, as you look back over the... Uh, the experience that you had, what do you want people to know? People like me who are civilians who uh, now we're too old to go serve, so we're never going to have that experience. What, what do you want people to know about soldiers? And what do you want people to know about life in a war zone or about you know war zones in general? You, you went there at an age where you could really, you'd already lived quite a bit of life and you went there um, with more growing to do, but, but you already knew quite a bit. What stands out to you now from this even later place in your journey at age 40? What do you want us to know about soldiers and about, about a war zone like the one you were in? I think, I think as far as soldiers, you know, they, they, they become like children, you know, like they become like your children, I should say. And, and they're, they're, they're very, you know, like any soldier, like that's, either been through that or even if they haven't been through that you learn so much discipline and you learn how to grow up at a very rapid pace of life and you know i think you know you, you see that in a soldier you know for the most part you see that respect of you know yes ma'am no ma'am you know even with civilians and you know just sort of a higher not really a higher level but just like a difference in a person you know i, I think it, it helps uh you know, just, just help someone to, to grow up more and to have appreciations for, for certain things. And that's, that's the same thing, like in a, in a combat zone, you know, you, you come home and you have new, new appreciation for stuff and, and you, you lose appreciation for things that you probably should have never had appreciation for anyway, you know, oh. and you, when you think about, oh, I got to have that Lexus or, oh, I got to have that pair of jeans. It's like, 
really doesn't matter to you anymore. It's it's not the it's not the driving force of your life. You know, when you think of material things or down to like you're in such a dirty and austere environment. You know, I joke. You know, something fl- falls to the floor and like, oh, I'm not eating that. And I'm like, eh, three second rule, it's fine. You know, <laughs> you, know you don't want to let anything go to waste because resources are so so thin over there to begin with that it's you know you. You, you come to appreciate, I guess, your resources more. I can imagine. That's powerful to hear. Yeah. And I bet you appreciate showers more now, too. Yeah. Well, you know, we did, I will say, like, uh, compared to probably people going in, you know, early on, we actually did have decent showers. Oh, good. Good, but good, good. Because I, I think did, about I, the desert. Oof. Yeah, I did appreciate milk more because when I was over there, there's no cows in, in that kind of environment. So all we had was reconstituted powdered milk. And uh, when, when we got back to Kuwait and we had our week transition before we came back home, uh, one of my friends and I, we he would joke because we call it the Kuwait Milk Challenge because they had real milk there. And probably every day I would go and get like a quart of milk or a quart of chocolate milk and just, you know, not the best thing to do in a desert environment, but I just, I craved milk so much. Ah, yeah. Beautiful. I can, I can picture it. It's the little things. It's the little things. Oh, talk to me a bit about, um, what you think about this. Many, many people console themselves with uh, a belief that everything happens for a reason. So if something happens in life that is very hard, they say, I may not understand what what this is all about, but it, I'm sure it happens for a reason. Other people who are just as faithful see it very differently. They say, I don't believe God controls all these things happening. I don't think it's all for a reason, but I think God will be with me in it. And And, you know, there's people of faith that come down on either side of that, and the church makes room for us to, to believe either thing. What do you think about that? Does everything so, happen for a reason? So, so I'm, I'm going to confuse that even more, and I'm going to tell you that in my opinion and my experiences in life, I think everything happens for God's reason. Mm. Mm. So, and, and I don't recall if I actually heard that from you or if that's something I've been contemplating recently. I almost uh, think it's something I heard in one of your homilies or uh, picked up from one of your homilies. Well, thank no, thanks for thanks for maybe giving me credit for your brilliance. I love it. Maybe I don't know. I don't remember yeah. saying those words, so I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna say it's yours. But uh, but you know, I, I think there's just things in life that you know, you know, I don't think God wills you know a natural disaster or you know a friend of mine whose whose son passed away at an early age. Like that's not something God wills. But I think I think God sets up the design of putting putting those enablers in place that, you know, help, help those people. So whether it's, it's me being for there for a friend or just, you know, I'll actually give you a really good example. I, I, this actually just happened to me uh, yesterday and, and to me it like tied perfectly into, you know, everything happening for God's reason. So something, something very innocuous. I, I go to leave work for the day say goodbye to my coworkers, you know, I wear suits to work normally, so I threw, throw my suit jacket on, and normally I put my phone in my suit jacket pocket, but completely must have bypassed that step in my mind, walk out, and I go, I get maybe a quarter mile down the road, realize, oh, I forgot my cell phone, and, you know, how often does anyone forget their cell phone? You forget your keys 
before you ever forget your cell phone. But mm. you know, I'm like, I'm like, all right. So I go back to tr- make a U-turn in downtown Syracuse, which right now with not a lot of people at work is easy to do. And you know, I go back, I go back to work, go upstairs. Probably cost me an extra 15 minutes because I went back in and coworker engaged in conversation. And as I'm leaving. I'm going out the door and I'm walking down the sidewalk because I parked in a different spot than where I was earlier. And I see a couple in my periphery behind me. They're walking down the street. They got a double stroller with two kids. I hear the kid kind of laughing. I kind of turned around and smiled and I kept walking and mm. get to get to my car, go to go in. And uh, all of a sudden I hear this, uh, hey, sir, you know, hey, sir. And you know, you can, you can tell, like, you know, I wear a gun, I wear a shield, you know, you can tell I'm in law enforcement, and the uh, guy approached me, and he's like, hey, I, I, my wife and I have been stuck here for, for a day now, we, we don't have enough money for, for bus fare, you know, we just need $4 each, we don't care if you, if you come with us and you pay for it online or whatever, and I happen to have $10 in my wallet, that actually all I had left, but you know, I, I gave, I'm like, no, nah, just, just take the $10. And, you know, the wife starts crying and, you know, mm. they're so happy they can, they can get the bus. But, you know, I, I say that because, you know, was it, was it random design that, that, that I forgot my cell phone? Cause I never forget my cell phone. Or was it that I needed to be brought back to that place in that time to help that family? Oh my gosh. I love that story. I love it. I love it. I love it. And to show that I've learned from what you've said, I want to tell you that what I thought of when you said that is you were able to look at them with soft eyes. Yes. You know, yeah. that was a soft eye moment because it's easy to say, no, go get a job or, um, you know, this is probably an addict or this is a, you know, but um, even if it nine times out of 10, it is this time soft eyes can tell you maybe it's not. Yeah, and I mean, maybe maybe they got one over on me, but in my mind, I think there was too much going on at play to have that just be something random. So to me, you know, it, it just goes back to it. It happens for God's reason. Oh, beautiful. As I always said in my homily. <laughs> I don't yes. remember saying that, Paul. You're getting full credit. I'm giving you full credit back. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Talk to me about how you endure things in your life and what you think the key to that virtue is. Every time I speak to somebody on this podcast, I like to ask them about what they think is the key to practicing the virtue of endurance. What do you think about that? You know, it's a very, it's a very old and cheesy adage, but it's, it's basically don't, don't, don't eat the elephant all at once. Nah, you know, I, I know that I bet there's people who don't know that you can't, um, yeah, you've got to. It's the idea that an elephant is too big a meal to think I'm going to gobble this up. And, and you know, it, it, you know, I've had different things over the years, and you know, obviously the the deployment. You know, going into deployment, like you know, I have this massive amount of responsibility. How do I deal with it? You know, luckily I had a really solid crew. I had really good NCOs underneath me that were you know you're always as an officer learning from your ncos so you know they're helping me i'm helping give them the you know the cover they need to do their job and so you know just by you know step 
step by step, you know, piece by piece, you know, you get, you start putting that, that whole puzzle together. And then it just, you know, you know, actually it's funny. I was, I was thinking about the term endurance, you know, I was getting ready for this and, and it's really endurance is, is nothing more than, than probably, you know, lasting five more minutes than whatever the problem you have going on is. Oh, <laughs> it's outlasting the problem. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love it. I love that. All you have to do is is look at this problem and last it outlast it by five minutes and you've endured. And that's, you know, I mean, I had, I, I would say probably the, I, I can kind of identify with people going through, you know, joblessness with COVID. Now I, I uh, almost lost my job a few times back in, in 2000, uh, it was like 2009 to 2010 time frame. Uh, the, mm. the government was going through such a turmoil and they just started laying people off. And I, I actually got issued three layoff notices in nine months. Wow. And and that, you know, like I was, I was so panic stricken. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And, you know, luckily, you know, my great mother, you know, she, she kind of talked me off that cliff of, you know, like, well, you know, obviously you're going to have to move home, but, you know, you're in a good spot. If you get unemployment, you'll have so much money for this. You can still afford your car and insurance. And, you know, when, once you start just breaking it down to smaller pieces, you realize that, that pretty much anything is surmountable. Mm, isn't that true? Isn't that true? Wow. I, I'm really going to feast on that. That's really, it's really, really helpful. Yeah. And let's end with one last question, which is especially fascinating to ask you because uh, you are, you've been deployed to Iraq and you've also been deployed to different parts of New York state to respond to coronavirus. And you were, you've been doing it at times where there's been extreme spikes, extreme surges, and the risk was so great. What, what are your best hopes for what our life can be like when we outlast coronavirus. If in the five minutes after coronavirus, <laughs> what <laughs> what are your hopes for what 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 life will be? You know, you know, I, I really hope that 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 the uh, you know what we start seeing is you know families coming together because you know maybe the virus forces them all home together, and that's you know, for the most part, fostered some really good, you know, and probably lasting relationships. I hope that continues down the road because simple things like, you know, as a family, at least once a week sitting down together and eating dinner and, you know, saying, saying grace before a meal, I think are just such important, you know, values we need to get back to, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things I, I would say, and, you know, I would, I would also say on, back to Psalm 91, you know, always, always just keep that with you and, you know, it'll, it'll help, you know, with any, with anything, you know? Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I want to address the listeners for a moment because, uh, Paul has introduced us to some very, very rich ideas and thoughts and, and observations. And I just like to recount a few of them. So if you'd like Take a moment to just maybe close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that and you're not driving right now and take just a, a deep breath in and exhale and take a moment with a few of these questions. Where would it be helpful for you to look with soft eyes right now? 
what situation in your life or in your community or in this world needs soft eyes? How can you take the altar view of this world or of some situation in your life? Paul said that the view from the altar made him want to stay an altar server for a long time because with the altar view, you could see so much more. And the altar view of Iraq showed him how much potential that land has. What do you need to take the altar view on now? What is something that you've been seeing a certain way that perhaps shifting to an altar view could really help? What is a problem in your life that you need to outlast by five minutes? How willing are you to outlast that problem? And what are you willing to pay in terms of, of patience and, and perseverance in order to do that? Paul is afraid of heights, but he relaxed when he realized that only from that helicopter could he get that view of this incredibly beautiful part of God's world where so much of civilization began. What in you could help you overcome a fear that you have? Where is your wonder stronger than your fear? Psalm 91 guides Paul's life. What's a scripture that you turn to in times of distress? What's the scripture that comes to mind when you most need to be reminded of God's presence? And if you don't have one, if you don't have one of those scriptures, might you consider Psalm 91? Or might you go to the Bible and, and take a look to see if there's one that's handpicked by God for you. Paul, you have been so generous with your time and with your insights. I am so grateful to have this conversation with you. I can't even tell you. Thank you so much for joining us and for allowing us to have a glimpse into the life of a soldier and, and your life as a, a person of faith. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. I really appreciate the time. And thank you all for listening. May God bless you all.